0: Hey, good morning. i not, not sure what the excitement is about. It's just the Super Bowl. It's not WrestleMania or anything. Sorry. All right, so welcome to our continuing series on Second uh, Peter uh, 1 through 10a. We'll start with reading that together here. You can remain seated. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So our section today is on false teachers, and this is, in case you're wondering, not a takes one to know one situation. Who better to discuss false teachers than really good teachers? I don't want to imply that I'm a great teacher, so I will declare it clearly and definitively I'm a great teacher. I know many of you uh, missed out on the opportunities to take my classes. It would be probably a serious abuse of this privilege here to emphasize what a horrible mistake you made in not taking my classes. So I will not abuse this situation right now to emphasize what a horrible mistake you made in not taking my classes when you had the chance. That would be inappropriate. So we won't do that. And unlike some people, I am not a uh, filthy millennial. I I am part of Generation X, which is short for Generation Excellent, as we now know. So. I'm not responsible for destroying everything that's good and worthy in this world. Um, So you can trust me, is basically what we're saying here. And the end. Peter has just discussed, as you may recall in chapter 1, the different natures of revelation from the past, right? And how, as we heard last week, to uh, accept and identify and receive how those revelations were from the right source, and how they should be understood and interpreted. Right? As we heard that they were not from the will of man; they were not uh, interpreted by man; they were spoke from God, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so now he acknowledges, after that little context of this is what prophecies were, where the prophecies came from, this is what they were like. He says that not everything was. Even back then, when those direct revelations were coming from God and directly interpreted, not everything back then was peachy keen, an old generation x sang. Or as our Canadian friends say, not everything was tickety-boo. Even when prophecies were coming from God, charlatans and liars, pretending that they had prophecies as well, were speaking. But of course they knew that they were lying. And Peter, noticed, was not surprised by this, that people have pretended to have revelations from God. And he says that we should not be surprised ourselves that there are false teachers among us today, our present-day equivalent, as there has been throughout the entire church age. Peter, of course, is not glad about it, but it is in an unusual way he is encouraging his audience about the persistence of falsehood in such circles of truth and revelation and doctrine. It's not encouraging in the sense, of course, that we should be apathetic, that it exists and just ignore it, He's not encouraging that, of course, we should be cynical and just assume it's always going to be there. There's nothing we can do about it. It's not a big deal. But he is encouraging that, in one sense, that we should not waste our energies in trying to be pure, in the sense that we can only be and go places that are pure and no one is ever wrong or mistaken. We should be, he says, encouraging and be merciful and loving intolerant of those who annoy us and embarrass us, and are mean to us. They really aren't as bad as these false teachers. Focus on the fact that there is those things around us. The Holy Spirit is telling us through Peter that the church, and perhaps other organizations that we know, will always be plagued by purveyors of falsehood. So we should not be surprised or offended or wounded by this. Instead, as he goes on for much of chapters 2 and 3, to say our response should be twofold. In much of chapter 2, he says, We should not be deluded by falsehood, but instead be diligent to know and believe and follow the truth. As we shall see soon in chapter 3, he says, Don't be despondent by the situation, but be there's no D word, excited for the Lord's return and restoration. Be diligent in acting out the deeds of your salvation grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So he says at the beginning, there will be three things, and we can know from other verses, there are three things we will always have with us in this life. The poor, the false teacher, and Google trying to tell us that all right is one word. (laughs) It is two words. A-L-L space R-I-G-H-T. That's not the most important part of this message, but you should remember that too. So for much of this uh, section here, and the rest of verses 1 through the beginning of 3, Peter gives us at least five, we'll focus on the five qualities of these false teachers. He says they are sneakily sneaking in destructive heresies. They emphasize and promote sensual conduct and content. They are very popular, and the consequences of their work, as we can note by the quality of the teachers, the consequences is that the truth, the way of truth, he says, is slandered or blasphemed, maligned. And perhaps most importantly, he says they have rotten motives. They are motivated by greed and exploitation of their audience. These are the five marks of false teachers. The first one, he says, the end of verse 1, is that they sneak in their teachings or sneakily, secretly bring in these destructive heresies. They know, false teachers know that they are wrong. This is not just bad teachers, misguided young teachers doing their field studies or um, things like that, student teaching, trying their best. These false teachers know that they are making everything up. They know that they are wrong. They're not inexperienced. They are malicious that way. The false teachers of whom we are to be wary know that they are false teachers, so they sneak in their teachings when people are not paying attention. The Greek here says that they are bringing it in for the, from the side. They know they're not coming in through the front door of their, for their audience. And certainly we know from Scripture and C.S. Lewis and many others, Milton and Paradise Lost, the importance of going through the proper gate to the proper door, for truth and the way Jesus is the door. And these people are coming in through the side door and they know that. It has also the idea of tacking on alongside. These destructive heresies they're sneaking in not just through the side door but alongside. Of course, you may think of uh, certain laws being attached to bills without a lot of fanfare. Here's the popular one that we know will get passed and so we'll sneak these things in when no one is looking. That is it tends to be pretty suspicious. And so Peter says this is a hallmark of Paul's teaching. They're trying to sneak things in without much attention, much explication. These teachings are, as he says, destructive heresies, which you might think is a, sort of an unnecessary adjective, right? Could there be non-destructive or not-so-bad heresies? Perhaps. The concept here has its roots in opinion and variations. But over time, of course, it has become much more pernicious, right? Peter is clear about these heresies. They are destructive. It's not just opinions of various practices and things for convenience. These are destructive things that are terribly false. And they are being snuck in the side door. And then they have brought swift destruction on everyone. And the people who do these things, the false teachers, have in fact, Peter says, in the past already, brought swift destruction upon themselves. And they speaking of Dante, a sort of Dante-esque fitting punishment that uh, we shall discuss in a moment. And after that he comes, Peter gives us a very interesting sort of aside, right? Uh, Even denying the master who bought them. And they, these false teachers, deny the master, of course, the Lord, right? Who bought them. It's an odd turn of phrase. The the them is not the typical use of the them in, in Greek here. So it could be the false teachers, they know that They have been bought and they are ignoring that. It could also be, and the the language that Peter is using here is very reminiscent of the Israelites being bought out of Egypt. So it could be more of a historical reference that uh, Peter uses uh, despot and master, another very unusual word that he uses for Jesus in this sentence here. So whether it's really... uh, the false teachers know that they have been bought or they know that their audience has been bought by Jesus. Um, I think it would be safe to sort of take either one of those as the meaning here. They both are certainly true. They have been bought. Right? But they are these false teachers are encouraging their audience like them to volitionally live their lives in spreading tales as if they have not been bought by Jesus and that their lives do not belong to someone else. Right? And so the ransom, he says, does not exist in the minds of the false teachers. And so they're trying to act that way, but they know that it is not so. So they sneak in false and destructive heresies. And they also, uh, the substance of these uh, false and destructive heresies is their dissolute ways. Once you've denied the fact that you've been bought by Jesus to live a certain way... It takes very little time to dissolve into a commitment to immoral behavior and a commitment to bringing as many people as possible down with you along that path. The Bible speaks today, commentators say, it is an inevitable hallmark of no longer believing in the second coming that ethics become a matter of private choice and taste. And the key issues are those of self-expression and fulfillment rather than purity and obedience. And so they bring others down Intensely, or self-expression and self-fulfillment instead of obedience to a standard beyond themselves. The third characteristic is popular. And Since I have been often encouraged, uh, people have been encouraged to clap out of my classes, I know I'm clearly not a false teacher because I'm not that popular. It's little wonder that teachers who tell that their own personal version of morality is acceptable would become quite popular. People really enjoy hearing that the life they are living now is just fine. One of the really terrible consequences of this, of course, is that people believe they have nothing from which to repent. And that no standard of living is beyond their ability. Even if there were a standard, they have no problem achieving it, since any way they want to live is acceptable. Fourth, despite what people who think that uh, living their own way does not harm anyone else, Peter says it's not just about you and your own enjoyment of life. Your very commitment to living incorrectly brings the truth itself into disrepute. The false teachers, of course, are doing this on purpose. They know there's a right standard, and the more people who ignore that standard, the more people who think the standard was never there to begin with. Or was not important or not a big deal or it's just old-fashioned on one hand of course the truth of god's word his character what he has done cannot be affected by whether people believe it or not whether people obey it or not it's still true whether we think it is or not so the issue in peter's mind of course is not whether it's still true but he has a deep concern for the reputation of god and the reputation of truth in the world in which he lives it's hard to prove to people they must live up to a standard if it does not seem meaningful, whether it's above them or in their own grasp. And this is something that matters very much to Peter, and it should as well. When people want to say that it's just me, I'm, not, I'm minding my own business, my sin is not harming anyone else. It would be enough, of course, that it harms them for us to act and to in love. But the fact that it is also besmirching the truth of God's word and what he has said is something that we should be mindful and care about as well and last the fifth quality of these false teachers and perhaps for Peter it is worst of all although that last that fourth one is, is pretty serious that these false people false teachers they don't even care about the people to whom they are lying they don't care about God they don't care about the truth of salvation that they and their audience have been redeemed and have a standard by which to live they don't care that they're lying and they don't care about the people And oddly enough, it's not even in us non-religious types teaming up against those religious weirdos over there sort of thing. When lying to unbelievers, these false teachers care only about themselves. They're a very greedy bunch. That could be one way to discern if the people are teaching you are good teachers or bad. Only good teachers care about their students. Bad teachers exploit their students and their audience. Darby translation says their concern for people is so non-existent they don't even think their audience is human. He says they will make merchandise of you. You are just to be exploited. You are things. They don't mind exploiting us because we are just objects to be used and used up. The falsehood and false teaching is pretty terrible from beginning to end. Then in verse 3, he turns to a very lengthy A series of examples to prove his point like a good teacher he states his claim and has several specific examples to prove it like several good english teachers tell you to do when you're writing papers peter ends his description with the second reminder in two verse here two verses here at the end of verse three that god is not slow to punish these people in fact that is his main point even after this lengthy description of what false teaching and false teachers look like his main point is that god is not slow and forgetful to punish these people. We, who have to deal with them all the time, easily forget that God is aware of their wrongdoing. Of course, don't take this the wrong way, but Peter is telling us, as I am telling you, don't be like Satan. From the beginning, he said, and it's always been, regardless of what God says, you won't really die. Some of the first lives in human history. Don't believe their condemnation is non-existent. Their guilt is evident, and their punishment is death. Peter says their punishment does not sleep. God is a patient being. He's a nice person. We tend to think that now that I'm saved, Jesus should come back and solve all my problems. But what if their punishment has not been so fully meted out yet, so God's mercy can become more evident to the world, so that his people can hone their obedience skills? So that his people can preserve and persevere and grow in their discernment and passion for truth. And that his people will keep getting better at loving others. It could be that. Peter does not spend time debating why their destruction seems to tarry. And most likely because of this, neither should we. From God's point of view, which is what interests Peter and what should interest us, their destruction does not tarry and it does not sleep. You should accept it and know that and be assured by that and live your life the right way. Perhaps pray for them, for sure, pray for them and their repentance. And so the rest of this section, verses 4 through 10, is a series of these three examples that Peter uses to show here's a historical fact, a series of facts that God not only knows how to dispense judgment, For the benefit of those who think his justice is so slow, he forgot how to do it. Or think maybe he never has punished the wicked. If it's not being done in my lifetime, maybe it's never happened. But Peter says God also does in fact know how to rescue people from judgment. He does so in six verses. That's one long sentence. In verse 4, the first example here is a sort of perplexing one with some of the trickiest uh, interpretive nuances in the entire New Testament, which we will gloss over for the sake of time We have to get to this party, partly because of some Greek words that Peter uses that occur nowhere else in the New Testament, and there's nothing to compare them with, and also the uh, old issue of course of manuscript inconsistency with what we do have of versions of this verse here, in effect, the discussion here. He did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under the, until the judgment. Strange enough, the real nature of this is not whether that's all angel or all fallen angels or all demons, and who's doing the bad stuff now, if they're all in punishment right now, things like that. The real linguistic new, you know, trouble here is actually not that the punishment exists, but it's about the nature of the punishment. Is it chains in darkness or is it just deep pits of darkness? And so as you can see there, that's somewhat beside our purpose right now. The fact is, says Peter, God has and will punish even angels. So don't be surprised or forget that God will punish human beings as well. So it may be a reference to Genesis 6. A lot of commentators seem to think that it is Genesis 6 when the sons of man came down and did those things. It could certainly also be punishment from before the fall of man in Genesis Jesus saw, you know, Satan being cast down like lightning, things like that. Uh, It could be, you know, uh, it may be helpful, you know, of course, Paradise Lost has not been written yet when Peter is writing this, and Paradise Lost is just a poem, you know, but uh, Milton's description of the demons being cast down in chains and fetters there for a while uh, may have some element of truth here in what Peter is saying, that they were cast down and they were put in chains. Maybe they were allowed to act after that. I don't know. And neither do you. We will not be talking about this in two minutes. Regardless, Peter says, of what instigated the punishment, angels have not been spared by God. They have been punished, and they have also be, they are also being kept for future punishment at the day of judgment. So as Peter says, there may be some who are not in chains right now. They may be out doing their thing. But even though, even if that is true, as it probably is, their punishment is assured. And take encouragement from that. So God has punished the angelic realm, and he will punish others. He knows how to punish. The second example here in verse 5 is, of course, the ancient world. More, an example more familiar to us. But Peter draws out some unusual aspects. If he punishes the angels, he will certainly, and he has, punished the ancient world. But Peter says, remember, though, it was not the ark that preserved Noah. It was God. God preserved Noah. The ark was certainly important, a tool for God's preservation, but it was the act and love and mercy of God that preserved Noah. God acted and sent the rain to punish others, He punished the ungodly, and God protected the godly. It was all God. We think we have it tough in the church today, or in workplaces or school, when our situations are not perfect. But Noah and his family were the only righteous people in the entire world. And you and I have a great deal of difficulty in understanding that. So take heart, Peter says, from even this example. It is possible to follow God and do what is right, even if literally no one else outside of your home does. And if Noah can persevere in being the only one trusting God for however many decades it took to build the ark, you and I can hang in there as well for however long we've got left. Noah, interestingly enough, left the condemning of his neighbors to God. He just built that ark. May not seem like great praise in Genesis 6, but it is. God said, Build the ark, and Noah built the ark. That's it. Can that be said of us in our way? God told us to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with him. And he did. That'd be a pretty good biography. The third example is a microcosm of the second that God punishes the wicked and saves the righteous. We tend to think probably of Lot as that selfish kinsman of Abram who took the good-looking land, but Peter has only good things to say about him here in this passage. Sodom and Gomorrah, says Peter, are examples of God punishing wickedness. The thing about cliches is that they're so true we comfort ourselves by thinking they are trite. We don't think that the real, actual, historical destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is real, like it's just a story from the past, to use an example. It is an example, but it really happened, too. It's a present example before us right now that should assure us that this is what is going to happen to the ungodly. and God cares about it, and he knows, and he acts. We often think of their corruption as mostly sensual, much like those fallen angels in first example, if that is part of Peter's theme here. And sir, that is easy to condemn. Sexual sin seems to be the worst thing of all time, a major aspect of our world today. But Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50 has some additional insights. Speaking to Jerusalem, God says to Ezekiel, Now this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor or needy." And verse 50 brings us back into some oddly more comfortable grounds for the destruction of Sodom. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them as you have seen. They were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. We should probably stop thinking that sexual immorality is the worst possible thing of all time, and the only thing that troubles our world today. God punishes the arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Hopefully not just one of those. I did away with them, as you have seen, is how it says in the NIV here. The ESV says, when I saw it in in Ezekiel. Interesting uh, subtle nuance there. Whether it was an example for Israel to see or God assuring them, Yahweh assuring them. When I saw, was aware of them and their punishment or their sin, I punished them. Either translation would fit and help us with Peter's reference to Sodom right now. It's an example for us, and God saw it and he did punish it in his own way, in his own time, but he was patient enough to allow a rescue of the righteous people from it. And that could be partly why it seems to us from why God's punishment to the wicked tarries, because he also cares about saving the righteous. Peter also gives us a more compassionate picture of Lot, as I said moments ago, than we get from just Genesis. Genesis. Peter describes a man who deeply regrets the choices of moving to a place that seemed like it was going to bring him prosperity. He is an outsider even after all that time. As the inhabitants describe him in Genesis, there's something so different about him they don't even really think that he actually lives there, though he does. Peter says that Lot was distressed and tormented by the proclivities of the people around him, by what he saw and what he heard heard what they said, and also, probably, what he heard them doing. Don't think about that too much. But their words and their actions troubled him deeply, their jokes and their unkindnesses and their coarseness and what he heard and saw them do. All of these deeply bothered him. He was distressed, certainly, as a father, by his family's growing acclamation to that world. So Noah surely was also distressed by the world around him. And you can probably apply it today. We should be likewise distressed as well. Lot did indeed call their deeds wicked, and so should we when we see it. But Peter does not mention that either Noah or Lot prayed for the destruction of the evil people around them. Maybe they did. Peter does not say that they did. Nor does Peter encourage us to pray for the destruction of the false teachers in our midst. Or pray for the destruction of the false people around us, the believers of false teachers. Their punishment, Peter says, is assured. And our job is to pray for them and live lives in stark contrast to their false teachings, like Lot and Noah did. Maybe they should be annoyed with us for how selfless and kind and generous we are not annoyed with how condemning and critical we are. And so we have, as Peter says, three examples. Chains in darkness, flood, and burning cities to ash. God not only knows how to destroy wickedness, he can be very creative about it when he wants to. We are still in the same grammatical sentence here in verses 9 and 10. And these historical things have actually already occurred in human history, Peter says. If God can do all of that, He can rescue people from much worse situations than we are in right now. Only one righteous man in the whole city, only one righteous family on a whole planet. Then take heart and be of good courage, says Peter. The Lord knows these two things. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, final, complete punishment. He knows how to do these two things. He may not do them when you want him to, but you and I should be glad that he does these things his own way and in his own time. Remember those people back in 1587? Remember them? There's a good chance that they thought life could not get any worse they were praying all the time for Jesus to come back and solve all their problems. And if he did, well, you and I probably wouldn't be here. If God kowtowed to their irritation at God's supposed delayed punishment to the unjust. So I'm sure they were great people in 1587, but don't be like them, wanting Jesus to come back just to solve your problems. Peter wants us to be comforted by the fact that the Lord knows how to punish, and he knows how to preserve, even when he is preserving us in the midst of terrible behaviors and terrible situations, such as these two final examples, the indulgence of lust and defiling pleasure and despising authority. It's never easy, is it? Sure, sexual immorality, that's bad, obviously, but this is God who also is prepared to punish the arrogant, the overfed, the unconcerned, and those who despise authority. So we have enough to keep us busy without going on the hunt for false teachers and trying to make sure that we live in a pure culture all the time. Pure in the sense of we're never around bad things or people who make us feel bad, It'll be great, sure. We're not trying to, we're not here to root that out, necessarily. We should not ignore false teachings, of course. The New Testament is, on the whole, pretty clear about that. Please don't misunderstand me. We should not just accept when things are false and bad. Peter has said, indeed, that it is very harmful, it's destructive. Possibly we should be more tormented about it like Lot was. Remember Peter's real point is that we cannot let its presence, even the ubiquity of false teaching, freeze us up into immobility because we're so offended or annoyed that it exists. It should not prevent us from doing what we know we should do and living how we know we should live. We can't be so bothered by the fact that God seems to allow false teaching to infiltrate our churches and businesses and our schools that we think he doesn't see or care or act. He sees, he cares, he acts, he punishes. Don't forget that. He has already punished. That we don't see it, or that they don't even feel it, does not affect the fact of God's punishment of the wicked one teeny little bit. In the meantime, which is good English teacher for English. In the meantime, you and I have a boat to build, or a cross to bear, or perhaps possessions to sell and give to the poor. We may have some of those. We do for sure have truth to discern and truth to delight in. Let us be so enamored with the truth of God's Word and the works of those who love Him that we can instantly spot the lies that have been snuck in the side doors by liars who hate us so much we are just dollar signs to them let us be thankful for the good teachers who love us enough to tell us when we are not living up to the standards of truth and beauty and goodness and who love us enough to fill us with truth beauty and goodness may we be humble fed enough concerned honors honorers of authority may we do so even if we are the last ones on the planet who are such people let's pray we thank you for your word we thank you even in these passages that are seemingly less encouraging that they are encouraging the fact of who you are and that you do care about truth you do care about falsehood and you want us to delight in what is true help us to be people who delight in what is true and care about others and ignore, not necessarily ignore the false teachings, but know what to do with it, and know how to respond the right way, Now, to be people who love everyone and act the right way that you would have us to act. In Jesus' name.